Today's podcast is brought to you by the March of Dimes and by MilkLife.com. Parents, we're proud to be sponsored by the March of Dimes. This month, March of Dimes is observing Birth Defects Prevention Month as partners with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Birth defects are more common than most people think. They affect about one in every 33 babies born in the United States each year. Thankfully, there are some actions that women can take to increase their chances of having a healthy pregnancy. For more information, visit the CDC's website at cdc.gov. Or you can go to March of Dimes at marchofdimes.org. With today's distractions and busy schedules, it's easy to lose sight of what's really important to us. From cooking with your kids to sipping a refreshing drink at home with them after a long day, dairy milk helps us savor the real moments that matter with the ones we love, while also giving our kids nutrients they need to grow strong and help them recharge. I will tell you, friends, when my kids were young and growing up, I gave them dairy milk at least three times a day because I knew it was very nutritious and filled with calcium. If you want to learn more about dairy milk, go to MilkLife.com. That's MilkLife.com. For 30 plus years, I've seen every type of child grow up. Instead of giving me what I wanted, she gave me what I needed, which was truth. Don't let emotions win. Let truth win. Do your very best, and you should have a lot of fun while you do it. And the better you get at something, the more fun you're going to have at something. You moms and dads are wired with everything you need to be a parent to a great kid. Welcome to Parenting Great Kids. This is episode number 74, and I'm your host, Dr. Meg Meeker. Today, we have a fabulous show, and we're going to be talking about screen use and your kids. Dr. Tom, Dr. Tom Kirsting is the author of the fabulous book, Disconnected. He's one of the most sought-after experts in the field of mental health, families, parenting in the digital age, and over-device use as he provides advice to millions of people through regular television appearances, radio, and print media, books, and private sessions. He is a straight shooter. He's passionate about helping families who want to help their kids detox from screen use. I know you're going to love my conversation with him and find it helpful and enlightening. And parents, as you know, I'm going to share my points to ponder so you can start using them right away. And as a reminder, don't just download the episodes, click subscribe. Because when you do that, you're joining my parenting revolution. And each new episode will automatically show up in your subscribe list. We'd love for you to write us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Also, not only are we on iTunes, but the Parenting Great Kids podcast is also available in the Google Play Store and on Stitcher. So no matter where you get your podcast, subscribe today. And friends, I'm excited to let you know about my brand new course, Discipline with Courage and Kindness. It's available at MegMeekerMD.com. So if you are having any difficulty 
disciplining your kids, you've got to check my course out. And remember, discipline isn't always about coming down hard on your kids. Discipline means to teach your kids. It's available at megmeekermd.com. So friends, I want you now to listen in on a conversation that I had with Dr. Tom Kirsting. I know you're really going to enjoy this. We see it everywhere at parks, restaurants, in our homes and cars, kids connected to handheld devices and disconnected from the world around them. According to the latest research, the average 13-year-old spends eight hours a day, seven days a week, glued to a screen. Yes, this is problematic, but to every problem, there's a solution. In Disconnected, psychotherapist and school counselor Tom Kirsting explores the device-dependent world our children live in and how it's affecting their mental and emotional well-being. Research shows that too much time in the cyber world is rewiring kids' brains, affecting their ability to flourish in the real world as anxiety, depression, and attention issues soar. Tom, thank you so much for writing Disconnected, How to Reconnect Our Digitally Distracted Kids. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Meg. And thanks so much for having me on your um, on your podcast. I'm looking forward to this. You know, this is a really hot topic. And two of the most frequent questions I get from parents revolve around screen time and anxiety. Can you talk about the effects of social media and video games on the brain? Yeah, absolutely. So in in my book, Disconnected, I mean, the reason why I wrote this is um, 10 years ago, I started seeing an uptick in, ki- in high school kids with being diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, and I knew something was up there. So I started aggressively researching it. And moving forward over the last few years, the uh, the hot topic now that we're seeing in my profession as a school counselor and private practice therapist is an epidemic problem Mm -hmm. with anxiety and depression. And what I had written in the book with some research to back it is that all of this technology, whether it's the amount of time consumed in a video game, whether it's all the time on social media, is not only changing the actual, um, the way that the, the, the brains of our kids is operating, but it's also affecting them emotionally. It's affecting them, their interpersonal skills, their social skills, everything going on in their family. And it's really just the perfect storm to create, you know, all, all, what we're seeing now, which is an epidemic of mental health issues. Talk about neuroplasticity and brain development. You know, we hear a lot about this, and I think a lot of parents aren't quite sure what neuroplasticity is, um, particularly in children and teens. Will you explain to us what it is and how screens, social media, and video games affect it? So neuroplasticity is actually the greatest breakthrough in modern day psychology. And what it is, is this. So anybody that's listening, if you've ever seen one of those images of a human brain and you you see those tree branch looking things on the outside, those electrical impulses, those are called neuropathways, right? So each one of those neuropathways is critical to some form of human functionality. So if you want to be a good face-to-face communicator, you need a strong neuropathway for that. If you want to be able to concentrate in the classroom and and uh, and focus better, you need a neuro neuro pathway for that, and so forth. So each one of them plays a critical role. Now, the way the brain works is this: any brain that is involved in in anything that is considered highly stimulating for three hours or more per day, the brain will grow a neurotransmitter. I'm, I'm sorry, a neuro pathway 
to adapt to that environment. Okay, that's what neuroplasticity is. Your brain will adapt to whatever environment it's spending the most time in. Now we know that the average kid isn't spending three hours a day; they're spending nine hours a day now, on average, in the most highly highly stimulating of worlds called technology. And although neuroplasticity in and of itself may sound a little frightening, there's something that's even more frightening. And it's called neural pruning. And what it is, is the following. Any of those neural pathways that is underutilized or not being utilized, the brain will naturally prune that away the same way that an arborer prunes away a branch on a tree. And now you lose that neural pathway. So this is part of the whole concoction of the social, emotional, psychological issues that we're seeing with with kids and adults, for that matter. You know, I think that you're absolutely right. This is an enormous breakthrough. And often I will tell parents, particularly of teenagers, that their brains are being wired during the teen years. Screens and interaction with screens are actually changing um, their brain development. And I think that this is really important for parents to know that this isn't just about your kids sitting, you know, because I think they're physical ramifications. Kids, kids have become indoor kids. Oh yeah. They sit and they're overstimulated and they're receiving stimulation. They're not engaged in stimulation like you would be if you're using your imagination or playing outside, but they're receiving all of the stimulation and even the stimulation alone affects the brain. You and I see a lot of ADHD. And in addition to the skyrocketing of anxiety and depression in kids, there's a skyrocketing of ADHD. You talk about acquired ADHD and screens. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So yeah, in Disconnected, um, that's really what got me into this topic and led to the book is I'd come across some research by uh, Gary Small, who's a medical doctor out of uh, UCLA, well-known, um, well-known individual. And he had done some research back in 2004 called Your Brain on Google that went national. And one of the researchers on his team coined this term, um, calling it acquired ADHD. So essentially what they meant by that is they had, they, they, estimate that about 70% of kids with attention deficit disorder don't actually have it. They don't have the neurological condition. As you know, ADHD is something you're born with. And by age five, um, it's almost impossible to tell if a kid, uh, you can't not tell if a kid has it by age five. And when you have all these 14 and 15 year olds suddenly being diagnosed with it, you know, the researchers have, have coined this term that's unofficial, calling it acquired ADHD. In other words, they have the symptoms of it, you know, they have the inattentiveness, they have the lack of focus, they have the disorganization, but they don't have the neurological condition of ADHD that you're born mm-hmm. with. They have mm-hmm. a brain that's just a mess, that's uh, a, a disorganized file cabinet from all of the stimulation of technology. Yeah. And what I have seen is that putting kids who have true ADHD in front of screens, particularly boys in video games, it makes it worse. Parents will say, you know, my, my, I don't understand. My son won't read a book, but he'll sit in front of a video game for hours. And I said, of course it does because it feeds his ADHD. You know, kids with ADHD, true ADHD are kids who sort of have a, a, a Porsche engine with a Volkswagen body. You know, it's just revving and revving and games just sort of feed that and um, you know that's very discouraging I have seen 
a difference between girls' activity on screens and boys' activity on screens. Girls are more interested in social media. And now we have some really good studies talking about the link between depression in girls and social media. Um, can you talk a little about why social media would, A, make girls more likely to have it, and B, the effect it has on their self-esteem? Yeah, of course. So, you know, and I address this in, in Disconnected, of course. Um, I call it cyber self-esteem, all right? Mm-hmm. And essentially, this is, this is what it is. So why are, are girls, even boys, but why are girls um, uh, showing all these signs of depression and anxiety? Why is the suicide rate through the roof? And ha- what does social media have to do with it? Well, here's what it has to do with it. All right, so if you go back in my generation, you know, I grew up in the 80s. I was a teenager in the 19, late 80s. Um, we didn't know what every single one of our peers was doing every second of their lives, right? So now you take a, a teenager that's already vulnerable, that's already trying to figure out where they stand in a social pecking order. It's part of the developmental process of adolescence. You take a teenager that's already going through that phase and you give them what I call the modern day weapon of mass destruction, the smartphone, and now they see every single self-glorified wonderful thing that their peers have done, every event they've been invited to, that their friends have been invited to, that they haven't been invited to. Every goal that their friends scored in the soccer game. And, and, and what, it, what it creates is just this never-ending uh, level of comparing oneself to everyone else and what they're doing to the point where the minds of these young girls and boys, for that matter, um, the self-talk that they're having with themselves becomes this. Everyone else's life is so much better than mine. And it's not, you know, a one-time off-shot thing. This is happening for hours and hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So it's this constant, constant barrage of everybody else's wonderful life. That's part of it. That's what leads to the, the – and, and plus all the time that they're spending on this is stripping kids away from – their responsibilities, their homework, their sleep, and everything else. That's affecting their schoolwork. That's exacerbating the anxiety. The arguing and fighting at home with the parents is, is, uh, is adding to it. So it's just really, like I said earlier, the perfect storm for what we're seeing right now in the mental health industry. It's very hard uh, for girls to get off of social media because it really is very addicting. And I'll be honest, as an adult, I can't look at Facebook because it really is a show-off zone. You know, all of my friends go, well, look at what my grandkids and look at what my kids are doing. It's um, it's like the, uh, you know, the quintessential Christmas card that where somebody is telling you all of the successes their children are having, you end up going, oh, you know, let's talk about video games and boys. This is an enormous problem. I get a lot of letters from parents saying, is it okay if my, you know, my eight-year-old son plays such and such a game, uh, which is very violent, and there's, you know, murder, even rape, um, you know, heads are blowing off. And I'm really kind of amazed that they would ask me that. But A, why are boys so drawn to video games and not social media? And B, what effect does it have on boys emotionally and neurologically when they sit in front of these video games for hours? That's a great question, Meg. So when I'm out giving my lectures, right? So let me start off by answering your question like this. When I'm, when I'm, when I'm out there giving my lectures to parents, let's say there's 150 people in the audience, right? And I will say, okay, who here has middle school age kids? All right, raise your hand or, or elementary age kids, raise your hand. So, you know, pretty much everybody raised their hand. Then I'll follow that question up with, okay, who here thinks that rated M violent video games are good for those kids, for your, for our children of that age? Raise your hand if you think that's good. 
if it's a good idea. So in all the years I've been lecturing, I've never seen any person raise their hand once saying, yes, that's good. And I'll say, okay, great. So we all agree that it's a terrible idea for our young our boys that are under the age of 17 to be playing violent video games and so forth. We agree to that, right? Yes. All right, great. Then raise your hand now. Okay, here's the next question. But don't really raise your hand. Just in your mind, raise your hand. How many of you in this room do your kids have violent rated M video games? But raise, I don't want them to really raise their hand. But this, what the point I'm making is that 70% of the people in the audience, their children have these games that the parents have purchased for them, even though 100% of the people agree that it's a bad idea. And that's what I talk about in a book called Social Conformity, where even any parent that's listening right now, what we tend to do, the reason why that woman asked you that question, Meg, is because every one of her eight-year-old son's friends, their parents have allowed their children to play those games, okay? And now her son is on pulling on her pant leg, and she, she's ready to relinquish her parental responsibility because of what everybody else around her is doing. That's called social conformity. And that's why we have this issue with all these younger kids playing video games like Fortnite even, um, which is not appropriate for kids under the age of 12 or 13, but you see kids that are eight or nine years old playing it. You know, this is always very frustrating for me because what I see, you know, parents will come in, particularly parents of teens, and say, I'm really training my kids to not buckle to peer pressure. And I want to say, I, I understand that, but think about how you're buckling to peer pressure because this is enormous. You're absolutely right. Parents will say to me, the reason my kids have video games, the reason my kids have cell phones in their hands is because all of their friends do, all of my friends are buying them for my kids. So I have to too. And I feel like, what are you modeling for your kids? You know, and you talk about creating leaders and creating our kids to be leaders. So if your son in third or fourth or fifth grade is the only one without a cell phone and can't play video games, good for them. You know, they're, they're leading. I am convinced too, Tom, and I would like to hear you weigh in on this, that if a handful of parents, say six parents out of a class of 25 or 30 kids said, you know what? We're not going to allow cell phones. We're not going to allow video games. I think that we could reverse that because there'd be positive peer pressure on other kids. Do you think that can be done? A hundred percent. In fact, when I'm doing my lectures, I bring that up and I, I, I've come up with, uh, I'm not sure how to pull it off yet, but I've come up with an idea. Let's, let's take the local school district that whoever's listening right now that you're, that you attend, your kids attend. Now imagine when you're, you're, you're in, your kid is enrolled in kindergarten, right? Let's say you don't have kids yet, but you plan on having them. And you, the first, before they even enroll in kindergarten, the packet sent home has a form that is a, an agreement that you're not going to purchase your child a smartphone until high school. Right? I'm just using high school as an example. Now, let's say everybody in that community signed that form and there was somebody that really, really you know, was on top of that. We would create a new social norm where it would be the cool thing to do would be, all right, be that area, that school where m- most of 90% of the kids don't have this, the smartphone or, the, or, or, or playing violent video games and so forth. So we could definitely reverse it. It's just that human nature is that we are like the flock of birds. When every bird turns left at the same time, we do the same thing as human beings. We do what everybody else does around us. It's, it's a common thing. And um, leaders, that's why only about 5% of people are leaders and 95% are, are followers. You know, particularly with kids. And it's tough. Um, 
as one who talks to parents a lot, because I firmly believe the best thing I can do for the kids in my practice is to help their parents. But talking to parents is very, very hard because I think they don't have a lot of self-awareness. And I'm talking as a parent myself. It's really hard to look at yourself and say, oh, well, that's what I'm doing too. And I need to change my behavior because we so much want to give our kids what they want because we believe it's going to make them happy. And video games are big, a big part of this. You talk about video games and the effect on boys' emotional development. And I would like you to elaborate that on because here's here's the re- response I often get from young adult males and parents of teenagers. Well, come on. Violence in video games isn't real, and my kids know that. And are you trying to tell me, Meg, that if my 17-year-old plays video games, they're going to go out and be a murderer? To which I say, no, they're probably not, but I can guarantee you it's having effect on them in many other ways. So talk about, we've talked about neuroplasticity and brain development, but talk about emotionally what these games, violent games, do to our boys. All right. So Meg, one thing um, that's a fact right now is that conduct disorder and oppositional defiant disorder are at epidemic proportions right now. All right. So we have right now a uh, society of young boys where anger and violence and um, oppositional behavior is through the roof. All right. It's not the norm by any means, but it's more so than it ever has been. Okay. So how do we, how do we create the, the um, parallel that that has anything to do with video games? Well, let me give you a quick example. All right. So the brain going back to the brain real quick, the brain is a supercomputer. It's very easily persuaded. And it's very easily guided based on whatever whatever stimuli that we're receiving. So if you go back, and I give this example a lot, if you go back to World War I, here's a perfect example. World War I, only 10% of combat soldiers were capable of pulling the trigger at point-blank range during battle. All right? By the Vietnam War, 80% of the combat soldiers were capable of pulling the trigger at point-blank range. And guess what the difference was? The difference was the following. In World War I, the types of targets that they used for training were your typical paper bullseye targets. By Vietnam, they were human silhouette-like targets. And that little change, just from going from a paper target to a human silhouette, went, uh, elevated that number from 10% to 80%. So now imagine we have first shooter video games that are very lifelike. It's definitely creating a desensitization effect in the minds of kids of our young boys. And it's absolutely a component to the oppositional defiant behavior and conduct disorder that we're witnessing. No question about it. And anybody that wants to deny that, I don't know what to tell you. Then don't listen to me. Exactly. You know, and sometimes I feel like that, you know, if you don't want to listen to me, go find a new pediatrician because I'm doing my very best to, to, to tell you truth. Parents, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Tom Kirsting. We need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Tom Kirsting. Smilo brings you the best in feeding, soothing, pregnancy, baby, and toddler products all in one place. Smilo's patented products are designed by doctors, engineers, and parents. Everything is backed up by proven medical claims, and all products have a 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Smilo is known for their 3-in-1 nursing and pregnancy pillows, 
bottles, pacifiers, baby lounger, sippy cups, one-of-a-kind baby bundles, and more. And friends, I love Smilo products. Their bottles are simple, they're easy to use, and there aren't a whole lot of parts like other bottles that can be tough to use. Their pregnancy pillow is so great for nursing or using in bed when you're pregnant that I love it and I'm not pregnant and I use it anyway. Their pacifiers are great. They have a baby lounger that's wonderful. The Monarch Pillow is a three-in-one pregnancy, nursing, and tummy time pillow that fits all your pre- and post-pregnancy needs. And the Baby Lounger is temperature-controlled to reduce the risk of overheating. And it has breathable sidewalls, cradles your baby, and prevents rollover. It's easy to remove and wash cover, assembles in seconds. And the bottles are easy to use. They're also anti-colic. And they're more like mom milk duct, makes it easier for your baby to latch, and it reduces air intake, and the fluid transmits to baby just like breastfeeding. It has leak-resistant venting, and it's easy to travel with, and it prevents leaks in your diaper bag. Purchase expertly designed products for your baby today only at smilobaby.com and use the code MEG for 20% off your order. That's S-M-I-L-O-Baby.com, code MEG. Founded by a collection of women at Harry's, a brand that reinvented shaving for men, Flamingo's mission is to create better hair removal solutions for women. Products are designed for every step of your hair removal routine and are made without parabens, sulfates, mineral oil, or petrochemicals. I want to tell you, friends, that Flamingo is a great product for girls who are entering puberty. And I know that puberty is a hard thing for parents to talk about, particularly when it comes to shaving and body changes. Using Flamingo is a great way to introduce your growing daughter and teach her what hair removal is all about. Because Flamingo wants you to enjoy shaving in 2019, they're offering our listeners the Flamingo Shave Set, which includes an ergonomic weighted razor with a textured grip and hydrating aloe strip available in three colors with metal accents. It has two five-blade cartridges made to the same standards as men. It has foaming shave gel with aloe vera, body lotion that hydrates and exfoliates, a hook to store your razor in the shower, and a reusable travel pouch. Get a set with all your shave essentials from Flamingo, the brand that Vogue, Clamor, Well and Good, and Fast Company are all talking about. $22 value. It's yours for just $16 plus free shipping today when you visit shopflamingo.com slash Meg. That's right. Visit shopflamingo.com slash Meg. Let's take it a little further. How do video games and desensitization and uh, boys 
acquiring a certain level of comfort with violence, killing, raping, blowing people up. How does that affect their relationships as they move into their 20s and they're having uh, more intimate relationships with women? Do you think it affects it? Well, you know, I have in my private practice, it's interesting that you bring that up, but I, I have had a an influx over the last four or five years of young to middle 20-something-year-old men, all right? I call them the lost boys because they're so lost with any direction in their life. Um, you know, they're flunking out of college because they're smoking too much weed. They're just not putting the pieces together, not thinking about their future. And a lot of it has to do with, without question, that a lot of them are gamers. They play these video games. They're doing social media. They're out of touch with reality. And even relationship-wise, another thing I'm saying right now is because of social media, the internet, and all that, it, there's also become a, I'm seeing sort of a sexual desensitization where it's become just so easy so accessible, okay, so commonplace that it's distorting the views of a lot of young men and what a relationship is and what a, and, and what a woman is and, and how to create that emotional bond. So that's certainly something I've been seeing a lot of. Um, and if, you know, if I could take any of these, any of these young 20-something-year-olds I'm referring to, put them in, in uh, Michael J. Fox's time machine and go back 30 years, they'd be completely different human beings. Boy, what an excellent point, because pornography is another thing that's going through the roof. And what I'm seeing, even in kids, it's amazing how many kids, you know, young teenage boys are hooked on pornography because they can sit in their rooms in privacy in front of a laptop or a screen and do whatever they want. And what I'm finding is boys are pulling away from uh, women or if they're gay, even, even other boys. And they're not comfortable with intimacy or close relationships. And they really view sex as just another bodily function. And this is very disturbing because it's anything but that. So, I mean, that's even being desensitized as well. You talk in your book about a common sense media survey and they identified addiction, distraction, conflict, conflict between kids and parents, and frequency. And you talk about the fact that kids have a need or they feel they have a need to respond immediately uh, to information that they get on their phones. And boy, I see this in adults. I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting there having lunch with a friend and I'm talking and all of a sudden she looks down and answers a text and it makes you feel really insignificant. So mm. talk about addiction, distraction, conflict and frequency in this common sense media um, survey and what that means. So to answer your question about that. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, everywhere it, it's you got to remember the tech industry when they design these apps. OK, these social media apps and so forth. You know, there's a reason why there's all these alerts. There's a reason why there's streaks on, on uh, Snapchat and so forth. And that is the, the more that they can garner our attention and have us fixated on these devices and on our screens, the more money they're making. Okay, So they've designed these things so that every little beep that you get, if your phone is in your pocket and you feel that buzz, it actually acts as a little bit of a dopamine drip. You get a little rush, a little excitement, like, wow, I'm being noticed right now. Okay, So now... Imagine that with adults, okay, which happens. It's happened to me. I'm not going to lie. Wow, I'm getting somebody's actually reaching out to me. Um, now you take, imagine taking a teenager now. And as we discussed earlier, they're already vulnerable um, because they're trying to figure out who they are and so forth. It's part of that process. And now you have this constant dopamine drip. 
this constant, I'm being noticed. Okay. And I think about self-esteem. And what I, what I say in the book and in my lectures is this, when you hear the term self-esteem, it starts with the word self. It doesn't start with the word others. So what others think of us has nothing to do with how we feel about ourselves. How we feel about ourselves is an inner dialogue that requires work. It's an inside out thing. It's not an outside in thing. I love it. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And <clears throat> you talk in your book, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit that I've experienced this, um, that phones going off and uh, messages coming in can actually create hallucinations in us. And uh, how, you know, kids can have their phone in their pocket and think they're feeling it buzzing. And I've done that. I thought, oh, my phone is going off. It's in my back pocket. And I look at it. No, it wasn't. That's pretty disturbing if you think about it, that we're hallucinating because we're so frequently attached to these, to these devices. Let's turn the corner and talk about what parents can do because I think you've really um, you know, enlightened us and, and gone deep into what, what these devices do to us. But let's talk about what parents can do because that's what, that's what all the parents listening really want. Um, my experience when I talk about screens and parents is that they look at me with this deer in the headlight stare. I get it. I get it. I get it. But, I can't really do anything about it. It's so overwhelming and they feel frozen. Um, what would you tell those parents? Well, that's always the big question. What can I do? Okay. So let's say you're 30 pounds overweight. All right. And I say, what can you do about that? Does anybody, the, the answer pops into everybody's mind immediately. Well, I can go to the gym. I can start eating less. Okay. Um, so, with the, when the question of technology, what can I do? I can't control my kid. He's spending, you know, hours and hours playing video games or on their phone in their bedroom and stuff. I, what can I do about it? Well, the answer is you already know what you can do. It's a matter of what I call parenting up. Now, I know it sounds difficult, and it is difficult. So anybody listening right now, it's not going to be easy. I think the reason why parents are looking for advice, they'll come to my office oftentimes and say, you know, what can I do about this? And the answer is very simple. You got you, you to you regulate this. But the problem is, if you have a, a kid that's a teenager that's already spending eight or nine hours a day on a screen, which is pretty much every waking hour, um, the, the problem with a parental problem comes in is as follows. The idea, they know what they're up against. As soon as they say, all right, that's it. I'm taking a phone away for a week. I'm turning off the Wi-Fi. They know they're going to have a monster on their hands. They know that they're going to have a, kid, a, a son or daughter that's going to go berserk and that is going to make their life a living hell. Um, I just did a segment last week, actually, on, on the Today Show, and anybody listening should watch it. There was a young girl who read my book, a 12-year-old. Um, she did a TED Talk at her school because her mom had taken her phone away. And the title of the TED Talk is called From I Hate You to Thank You. And basically what this mom did is saw some problems developing, took the kid's phone away for a month. And after the first week, the girl was hated her mom. After week two, it started getting better. And by week four, the girl was thanking her mom because she felt mm -hmm. freedom. So we really have to be patient. So anybody listening, go, go look at that segment. It was on a Today Show a week, uh, week and a half ago. Um, that girl and I was on with her. And that's really it. It's patience. Um, we, ha we have to trust our instincts that, that what we're doing is correct, whether it's, you know, what I do with my kids, for example, is I have a 15-year-old son. He plays video games. There is no video games during the week, period. 
All right. You're not playing video games during the week. It's as simple as that. And that's just what the, that's, that's the rule. And the weekend you can play and you play in moderation. When I tell you to turn it off, you tell you turn it off. My 12 year old daughter, she's a sixth grader. She's the only kid in her grade without a phone. She has an iPod, but she doesn't have a phone. She was asking for a phone, begging for one for Christmas. She didn't get a phone for Christmas. So what I like to tell parents is that the number one word in the parental vocabulary should be the word no. Boy, that's an uncomfortable word that um, parents have because I think they believe if they say no, um, they're going to be in conflict with their child and they don't want conflict because they feel that's going to lead the child to unhappiness when in fact it uh, leads to kids actually being happy. We had a rule, my husband and I had a rule that during summertime, uh, there was no television, there were no movies. We didn't have cell phones back in that day. And, and uh, there, I mean, there were laptops and everything. We said no screens. The first two weeks of summer were horrible. I mean, horrible. Our kids fought. They got mad at us. They, I mean, we had four kids having major temper tantrums. But I'll tell you, after those two weeks were over, we noticed a calm come over them. They started to interact. They were making things. They were spending time outside. And by the end of the summer, they didn't even think about television. So sometimes you really have to go to battle with your kids and battling over screens is a battle that needs to happen because it it will have such dramatic effects on your kids and your relationship with kids when you're willing to endure their horrible temper tantrums. And I wanted to say one more thing and I would see if, if you would agree with this. The worst temper tantrum your child has, the bigger red flag that is that they might have been addicted to that device. Because when I see boys who are really addicted and they know they're addicted, you start to wean them from it and they go into withdrawal. Do you see that? 100%. You just hit the nail on the head. Look at it like this. If you take a drug addict, okay, there's a big difference between a drug addict and a drug user. There are people that use drugs but aren't addicted. And if they don't have it, then, you know, so they're, they might be irritated. There are people who are addicted, and if they don't have their dope, they're going crazy. They're going berserk. It's like the old term crackberry. Remember the crackberries before smartphones? Those little, those little phones that we use, they were called crackberries because basically if you dropped it between the, the seat of your car and the, and the middle console, it, it would be like somebody searching through their car to find their crack. Um, that's, where the, that's where the term came from. So without a doubt, so that's a perfect example. So anybody listening, Meg just hit the nail on the head. If your kid is, if the reaction, if the, if the punishment, if the reaction doesn't fit the punishment of the crime, okay, and that, your child is going berserk, then you know that the problem is more serious than you think. But it means a bigger fight with parents, but you've got to be willing. That's to, okay. Yeah, it is okay. It is okay. Let's give some very concrete things that parents can do. And you talk about this in the book. Um, what are four or five things that are very practical that parents can do and a place to give them to start. Number one, all right, in, in, in terms of taking control of this, number one is never, ever allow your child to have any kind of a device in his or her bedroom, ever, okay, period. If you were to take a, cl- a college class right now as an adult, you want to go back to college and you took a parenting class, parenting one-on-one, the first sentence in the textbook would say, never, ever allow a device in the room. Yet most people allow it. Start with that. Number two, during the week, if you have a gaming, a kid that likes to game, establish a new rule. During the week, there is no gaming. You're a school student. Um, 
that is your job right now. Your job is to do well at school, to pave a way for a successful future. The games are just going to get in the way. That's number two. Number three is model the behavior that we expect from our children. So, you know, if we, if you just be aware of your own uh, technology use, if you come home from work every evening at six or seven o'clock and you're glued to the screen or the television the whole time, then you're not interacting with your child. All right. Another important thing, number four, is as best you can, any parents out there, try to have family dinner more times per week than not together without any interruptions. Okay. And number five, make an effort to have meaningful, deep conversations with your children. If you do those things, you're going to start to establish a household that is cohesive and a family relationship that resembles that of families. And a home that's calm. Yeah. You know, where anxiety goes down and depression goes down and there isn't a sense of freneticism where everybody's checking their phones and on their phones. And um, I, I know you experience this too, but you go out to dinner and you look at the table next to you and you've got four people and nobody's talking because everybody's looking down at their phone. Tom, we don't have much time left, but can you speak directly to that mother or dad out there who says, you know what, my kid is 15, I've blown it, they've had screens since they were eight, they use laptops or television in their bedroom, and it's too late for me. What would you say to that person? What I would say to that person is this, write this question down on a piece of paper for yourself. Will I ever give up on my child? And now answer that question. And the answer is no, I will not. So the, so there's your answer. Never quit on your child. If they were born into this and now they're 15 years old, fully enveloped in it, take on the challenge, start establishing new rules. You can change this. In about 30 days, you can reverse this course. Stay with it. You can do it. Never give up on your child. Amen, amen. The book we've been talking about is Disconnected. How to Reconnect Our Digitally Distracted Kids by Thomas Kirsting. And I will tell you, Tom, I believe this is one of the most important books of the decade because this is going to be a problem that's just growing. But I, like you, really believe parents can have a very strong impact on their kids' development, and they really can take more control than they think they can. So I really want this podcast to be a positive one to parents and say, you really can do it. I hope you pay attention to and write them down, those five very concrete things that Tom told you to do. And you really will change your home and you'll see a huge change in the behavior of your kids and your relationship with your kids. Tom Kirsting, thank you so much for being my guest today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Meg. I really appreciate it. Points to ponder. One, don't be afraid when it comes to screens. Be bold. You know, too often parents become overwhelmed with screens and they throw their hands up thinking, there's nothing I can do. Remember, never parent out of fear, but of strength. This means that you can follow your instincts and make good things happen. The first place to start is with yourself. Take a hard look at your screen habits. Do you check your phone during dinner? When you're having a conversation with a friend or your kids? Can you go for hours without checking your phone? Be brutally honest, and once you change your screen habits, it will be a lot easier helping your kids. 
you can't ask your kids to do something that you aren't willing to do. So once you change your own screen habits, be bold in helping your kids change theirs. They're going to have a temper tantrum, but oh well. Two, begin with small steps. You don't need to begin changing your kids' screens habit by throwing away their phones. Focus on weaning them off of screen time. Begin by saying that there are no phones allowed at mealtime, whether they're eating with you or their friends. Force the family, yes, force the family to eat at least two meals per week together and then model to your kids how to eat while talking to each other. Also, set a rule for everyone in the family, and that includes you, that you are allowed two hours of entertainment screen time per day. Make sure to check in on your kids who are using screens for homework frequently and then check their web history. It's really tough for kids to do half hour of homework without checking social media or going to another website. Many kids say they need four hours to do their homework when half of the time they're on social media or they're browsing. Three, Be willing to put up with temper tantrums. Whenever you make a change, your child will resist. The older they are, the more they resist. They'll scream. They'll tell you that you're a mean parent. You're unfair. They will tell you that no other parent is as strict as you are. They'll plead that they need their screens because they don't want to be the only one in their class who doesn't have a phone. Most kids will fight you for a month or two and then they'll back off when they know you're serious. So expect fireworks when you insist on changes. This is 100% normal. Also, if you see your child having a really hard time giving up a device for even half an hour, this is a red flag that he or she is addicted to their device. And that means they need you to take charge even more. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Tom Kirsting, and you need to check out his book, Disconnected. It will help every parent, whether your child is addicted to their screens or even if they're not. So let's recap my points to ponder. Don't be afraid when it comes to screens. Be bold. Second, begin with small steps. And three, be willing to put up with your child's temper tantrums. So until next time, parents, remember, great kids are raised, not born. Hey, this is Bobby, producer of Meg Meeker's Parenting Great Kids podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening to episode 74, Kids and Screens, Help for Parents. And thanks to you, Dr. Meg's Parenting Revolution has grown to over 2 million downloads. You can like Dr. Meeker on Facebook and follow her on Twitter and Instagram at MegMeekerMD. As a reminder, go to MegMeekerMD.com and sign up for her newsletter for giveaway opportunities and updates. And don't forget to share the podcast, write us a review, and click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. 